Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Broken Oars podcast. Not Broken Oars indoors this time. We are very much back on the water. Aaron is looking delighted. And so he should, because today we have got one of our, our frequent Kiwis. We've got, we've got another Kiwi con- contributor. We've got Axel Dickinson. Tell the good people about Axel, Aaron. Before I do, can I ask, um, with, with the frequent Kiwi program, do we get kind of like miles, like a frequent flyer mile? The more Kiwis we have, the more points we get. And I, I mean, what does it lead to? If we have over a thousand Kiwis on the podcast, we get like citizenship or something. And then, then we have to wait till COVID drops down a bit before we're allowed to actually go. So technically, to actually move to New Zealand, which we've both talked about in the past because it's a wonderful outdoor culture, all we need is another 998 Kiwis to come on the podcast. Yes, basically. Let, let, let's, let, let's start calling people. Let's call that, um, that, other, that other Kiwi who said he was interested. What's his name? Uh, Drew. Drew something. Drew. Sounds like a drink. Something you, you might drink with tonic. Yeah. Drew Barrymore? Drew. Yeah, that's him. Yeah, let's get Drew Barrymore on. She, she looks like she can pull on a handle. Uh, um, which, which bit of uh, New Zealand was he from? Drew Barrymore. I have literally no idea... <laughs> Because I'm rapidly conflating famous Antipodean roles with, with, with reasonably famous American actresses of certain vintages from E.T. onwards. Axel Dickinson. Great episode. Uh, great guy to chat to. A man who started rowing in exactly the same year as I did, but achieves quite a lot more. Well, you say that, but, you know, one of the good things that came out of your rowing career was our friendship. I treasure it. How you feel about it, I have absolutely no idea. What struck me about Axel's episode was the way he got right to the heart of some of the, the key issues facing us in this small, sceptered isle, this fortress made by nature for herself that we call the United Kingdom. For example, he was bang alongside the idea of us getting our imperial weights and measures back. He was really excited about the fact that we now put the crown back on pint glasses. And honestly, those kind of insights coming from someone outside of the country really make me feel good about spunking our country's future up against the wall for a Tory internal psychodrama. Sorry, that wasn't Axel, was it? That was me just going off on one. Yeah, that was you completely going off on one. What I liked about Axel was it was this thing where you get someone who isn't from the local in-group but does what the local in-group does and they come in and they just have a look around and they say, this isn't quite right. And there are things that we can do differently and we can make this work better. And he just pointed out all the things that we can do differently. We can do better. And that was great. It was a zero bullshit zone for an hour and 40 minutes. I've said this before. I think we've been really lucky with our guests. We've always we've always learned something. We've always had fantastic chats, and I think we're we're in a really lucky position, you know, to to, to have gone through that. But we found this with Eric Murray. There's a certain kind of laconic New Zealand approach to things where they kind of they're talking, and you kind of think they're going somewhere with this, and they just lay it out. And there is there is no filter, no bullshit. So so we got social and class differences between New Zealand and Britain and how that impacts on rowing. We went back through um, how he got into rowing, uh, starting with his kind of rugby career in Wellington. And then really important insights about um, the, the outdoor culture in New Zealand and the idea that 
doing more than one sport is a good thing. And also, and this is, this is a, a big one because we've talked about it with, with Sally Kettle and with Kate and with many others. There are a lot of women and girls who really love doing sport in New Zealand. I mean, some of the numbers that he came out with were fantastic, staggering, in fact. Yeah, I mean, it was that that was a major thing. Um, it is a little bit of a strange one in the UK. Women and sport, I don't know if we can say it's women and physical activity, but it's like this women and specifically sporting activity that there seems to be this massive discrepancy between men and women. And of course, coaching led onto the thing that really drew us to Axel in the first place was uh, his role at Hinsky Scaling School. And yep. what he managed to do with there and the achievements they've had at Henley this year, um, which I think for a lot of people were something of a highlight this year. It is. Uh, but what I'm going to say is I think Axel tells it better than us. So let's just dive straight in there with him. As soon as people get on the call, I just hit record and just go. Yeah. This is my second podcast in two days. So I'm feeling like a, a minute, minute, miniature celebrity for a minute. Do you have a chat to? I did one with um, Junior Rowing News. Look, all, all I'm saying is they started right after us. There was no one, then there was us, and now there's just thousands of rowing podcasts. It's yeah. just... <laughs> there's not a single New Zealand rowing podcast, so I might have to kick that off here. Your rowing culture is immense. It's immense. We we had Eric Murray on uh, just after Christmas, maybe January, February. We, we were both like end of the call going, we've got to go to New Zealand. That is a place to row. Yeah, it has got, it's got a neat culture. It doesn't have the same sort of club presence as you have in the UK. Like there's a lot more adult rowing in the UK than there is in New Zealand. And maybe it's just a symptom of numbers or whatever. But but like it's a really cool place to row. And um, you, I mean, you get on the water all year round and we've got lot, lots of lakes and rivers and all of that jazz. Um I don't know, like I feel like we've got more access to waterways than you do where the rowing sort of happens in the UK. You've just got the Thames and that's kind of like, it's kind of you know, a narrow sort of windy stretch in the scheme of things. So we're quite privileged here and, and we also, you know, you've got rowing throughout the entire country, not just um, primarily based in one pocket. Yeah, we've been, we, we've been kind of, because we, we watched um, Henley this year and we noticed that pretty much all of the winners were drawn within about 30 miles of the of, of the Henley track. And we've been kind of diving into um, the, 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 the way the club structure has come about in Britain. It's very historically based. It's very, very class based, which is why, you know, we I'm, I'm in Newcastle at the moment, Loon's down in Canterbury. We've got at least four good clubs up here in the northeast on the Tyne, which is a great stretch of water. But everything, everything in the rowing pyramid points towards the Thames. So when you you identify it as a as a New Zealander, as that's where most of your rowing happens. Yeah, it happens all over the country. People only think it happens there, and it doesn't. Yeah, I think a lot of the sort of, and I don't know whether it's just because you're sort of in and around it, but a lot of the really highly competitive rowing is going to happen in that area, which is funny to me because you know, I did a bit of travel around Scotland, and I was just like, well, here's all the lakes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's so there's loads of lakes up in Wales. Also, just um, I mean, we've got a place called the Lake District. The clues in the title, and I think it's like what three, four rowing clubs up in Cumbria. It's it's really crazy. It's like they're just like oh, yeah. going backwards in a boat. We don't do that around here. 
No. It's interesting. Bye. Yeah, we um, I did a, I did that bike ride of the UK, and we went through the Lake Districts, and I was just like, man, this is bliss. Um, <laughs> there's so many cool places to that you'd be able to ride, but just yeah, again, it's not just, it's just not centered there. Which I think I understand the sort of historical side of things, and I think the UK is sort of very much deep in history, whereas New Zealand's such a young country. Um, <laughs> but like, definitely just like a different vibe. Where you just like, okay, the Thames is all good, but it's it ain't that great. And um, but that's just where ninety percent, like you know, maybe eighty percent of the rain sort of happens. Can I just say, Axel, you you danced around that with such tact and diplomacy. That was beautiful to see. You're steeped in history, not you're a class-based, hidebound society whose power structures have been ingrained over the last thousand years. Here in New Zealand, we don't think like that. Well played, <laughs> that man. Well, we don't. No, to be fair, we don't think like that because we don't actually don't have history like that. So yeah, but no. I've sort of observed those things from my time in the UK around the classes sort of stuff. And I suppose rowing is like a really um, uh, interesting microcosm of that where it's quite apparent. But yeah, like it. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that that's kind of like, that's like something to like fit in and chat about with the whole Hinsky thing. Because I mean, it, it really did seem like from that point of view, they're not really almost meant to be there. They're just yeah. like, why are they there? And there's like, there's one reason. They push the boat down the river really quickly. Yeah. That, that's kind of like one really good thing about it, but that you can just say, it's like, well, what are they doing here? Well, they're rowing really fast, mate. And and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's, it's it, that is actually a really nice thing to see. I mean... Oh, it's, good. it's good. That's the beauty of sport, really, is that it's like... Um, I mean, you know, we, you can argue how much of a meritocracy it is, but like, you know, as far as, you know, it's a, for the, by and large, it's a meritocracy, right? And um, if you want to be great, you can, you can be great. You can surround yourself with good people and um, just so long as you got the bare bones, you can kind of do something. Yeah, it's just funny because the mindset sort of, because of the historical sort of like class-based stuff around rowing in the UK, there was always this, there's always this notion that like you need uh, X, Y, and Z to go fast. You know, you need this plant, you need this system and, um, you know, these, uh, this amount of number of athletes and, and yeah. everything like that. And I guess, yeah, I guess what sort of things he's proven, it's almost been like to the detriment of smaller clubs in a way, because it's kind of shown that like no one's really got an excuse. We, we do have a long, we have a very long alternate history of, of working class rowing clubs and, and um, what used to be called professional watermen. But because, you know, places like Leander and Henley are so dominant and such kind of a part of the, uh, the idea of England as a green and pleasant land. And, and you know, they're, they're, they're kind of part of the, the history of the country based in the South. You don't really get those alternate narratives coming through. But what you've just said is, is I think, pretty much, I mean, Lewin might not agree because he's a posh Southerner, so he might be about to march on the North and, you know, steal my women and take my sheep and all, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. if you are fast enough, if you are fast enough, you will find a way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's such an untapped resource um, for British rowing as well, is actually just opening rowing up to the masses a bit more. Yeah. And like there isn't there isn't that sort of base of sort of community clubs like you have here where you've just every club's virtually a community club and you have schools that operate out of those clubs rather than having schools that are clubs 
Yeah. Um, there's only probably a handful of those in the country that are schools with clubs, mm. you know, that have their own club. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's, a, it's just a different sort of vibe. And to have public school rowers, what well, you guys school state school rowers rowing is like every single club has, has like state school schools operating out of their building kind of thing. But the, the club facilitates the rowing, not the school. The school pretty much has nothing to do with it. It's something we're working. I'm I'm currently rowing for Tyne United, and and um, we're not a high performance club in the in the tradition of an Agecroft or a, or a, or a Tyne RC, but we are a community based club, and and it is for, it, it is for anyone who just wants to come down and have a go. And we're actually trying to get a program going to get the local state schools involved because in the surrounding valley there must be. Off the top of my head, I can probably think of four within within easy distance of the boathouse where, where where you know kids could be coming down to row instead of instead of doing whatever in in PE. The way the club system's grown up, it, we we have a very good rowing community. I think Loon would agree with that, and 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 a lot of the people that we know in rowing in Britain are pretty decent people by and large. But we don't have that community centre approach that that which I think is what you're talking about, Axel. Would that be right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so it's because I don't know I've just kind of got this belief that like no matter where you go, there's good athletes, right? So like mm-hmm. I kind of see like okay, every state school that doesn't have people like have rowing opened up to it, well, it's just kind of you're just taking away from the talent pool. Um, and I think yeah, clubs, and and I know you have clubs that are like high performing club clubs, like um, teams and stuff like that that sort of don't really carry juniors, but I just feel like. Um, the more, yeah, there's just the more you can open it up and and, and just the, the wider community, like Hanksy strikes a nice balance between having those social rollers that for the for those kids, it's like this is a sport that they do, but they have no intention on taking it seriously. They just enjoy being out in the water. And then you've got, we have some people that have um, like disabilities and stuff like that, um, rowing Hanksy, um, you know, that are, that are adults that, um, you know, need to keep active um, for their own sort of well-being and, um, so being able to kind of cater to those groups while also being able to have a high performance end of it. And that's something that Hanksy never had, never had the performance end of it. Like when I stepped into it, I think the best result of the previous season was like a C final at Nat schools. Um, so like, it, but the debate was always like, well, if you try to make it a performance club, then you don't make it a community club. But like, I felt like through the kind of culture we built, you can definitely um, balance them all like quite nicely actually I think they complement each other in some ways where you might have social rollers that kind of come down you might see them once a week once every two weeks but when they're there there's such good energy and culture in the building and everyone's so welcoming that it's just like oh mate yeah get amongst them all that you ask is that for the social role when they come down even if they're just there for a bit of a laugh they give it full scene for the, for the day that they're there and, and get amongst and you know and that, it actually almost uh, added to the culture that um you would have, you know, it would be, oh, we haven't seen Jack in a couple of weeks. We really enjoy Jack. And when Jack shows up, it just kind of lifts the room because it's just a guy you haven't seen for, for a bit. And he would get on the water or get on the erg and give it everything. And um, you'd have a good time together sort of thing. And, like, I think that's what it's kind of, it's probably not an easy thing to balance the strike, but I feel like we kind of accomplished that. I think so we're maintaining that at the minute and um, hopefully building upon it. But I do get that, like, sometimes with clubs, they'll have their own sort of, they're like, this is our path, right? We're a, we're a performance club for adults or we're a junior club for whatever um, and don't really want to stray from that line. 
Um, but I just feel like you can kind of cater to to everyone if you kind of you know, I just guess create the right environment. I think it's it's important because you know your club should almost be like a reflection of society in a way where you're not like just like um, being like so exclusive that you know you only really yeah I just don't think it's probably like good for the health of the sport overall so I feel like every club should have its sort of like social you know social responsibility to to um, like as you know to open up access to to like everyone really we've had a lot of people on the pod I mean Pete Brewer kind of uh, he, he almost wrote a thesis on it for us um, and really saying sort of like the key business of a rowing club is to facilitate rowing. It's not to win Henley. It's not to win Nat School. It's to get people into boats and put them on the river. And then everything else from there builds up. I mean, I mean, what, what was your kind of entry into the sport? I mean, were you a, were you like spotted as like an athlete or did you just like say, oh, that looks like fun, I'll give it a go? Yeah, I was, so I'd moved from um, Taranaki in the North Island to uh, Petone, and I'm um, just like a suburb just outside of Wellington. Uh-huh. Um, just the capital, and um, I moved there when I was like 14, and I'd been just been playing like cricket, rugby, and basketball as a youngster. And um, my uncle rode for like two seasons once upon a time, and he saw me, and I was a bit of a string bean. Like I'm, I'm not like so like I'm super tall, but I was like. I was about six two and like seventy kgs or something, and he was just like, "You're a scrawny bastard. You need to row." <laughs> um, so then I went down to rowing, which was a five minute walk from my house, to be fair. And um, I think two weeks later, I quit um, rugby, basketball, and cricket. And I was just like, "This is my thing." <laughs> um, okay. And I just had like, uh, I really, I just the things that drew me towards it was just like, um, I don't know just how miserable it all was. You know, you jump on a rowing machine, you just know how hard you're working. And I quite like that. I quite like that aspect. That's probably what drew me to it initially. It was like I felt like more in control of my destiny than I felt in a team sport. And it wasn't that. I was a, an amazing team sport athlete. Like I I was like, all, I was all right at rugby. I was all right at um, basketball. I was probably pretty shit at cricket. And, um, and right, I, just kind of, I, I think I always like like to really work hard and I was like okay this this could be me and I had like um kind of I was I was skinny but I was quite powerful um and I was like okay maybe I could actually do something here so that's how it sort of that's what sort of happened but like rowing Wellington uh I was, naivety was my uh biggest um weapon there really because Wellington is such a horrendous place to row like it's the it's right it's it's measured as the windiest city on the planet and you row on the harbour so you can imagine how accessible the water is um, <laughs> yeah, I, I i just i mean literally while you're talking i just looked at like google maps for wellington it's like well you're not short of water but it's pretty no. open i mean is it it's it's got like ferry routes out of there yeah no it's um it's gnarly so i'm on the other side from the city um okay. and you get so the you know, he got the cook straight, so that yep, funnels. Yep, yep. If you get a, if you get a southerly coming through, that like funnels right through into the harbour, and it's just like pretty much like storm weather. Like it's it's a 
it's a great city on a good day. Like it's the best city I've ever been on a good day. Like it's got a cool as vibe. Like love Wellington, but the weather is shocking. And like particularly the wind is like horrendous. Yeah. Um, so we just did a lot of like my first three years is just a shitload of like running on the beach or running up hills or erging. You're doing circuits. I mean, if we went out in the eight, we were too shit to row whole eight. So he'd just make us row in fours and sixes and um, and just did that for like three years. I mean, got a trial for the New Zealand junior team, but I didn't make it. And then I just kind of kept going. Like I kind of moved into like the high performance side of things and got to like a, a program that had flat water and then started to sort of progress from there. And I don't even feel like I was ever coached particularly well. I just sort of had to figure things out as I went. But um. But I guess, yeah, I just kind of like really wanted to be good at it. It was sort of, I'm quite like an obsessive sort of person when I got to get my mind fixed on something. I kind of, I, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night until, you know, it's like, you know, it's like um, until you've accomplished it, you just like, you just, you can never leave it. How you know? long ago was that? I mean, I started rowing like the 2005 to 2006 season. Okay, now, I'm I'm like slightly gutted now because like that's about a year after I started rowing, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just thinking, yeah, you've done slightly more with your own career than I have. So yeah, <laughs> so I mean, it, it, for you, it was kind of like doing a lot of different sports. Oh, oh, and then there's rowing, and just that that's been it for you, basically, has it? Yeah, pretty much. I think it's pretty normal for Kiwis to do a lot of different sports throughout their childhood. Like, um, if you're not doing, like, two sports, I'd say that's pretty unusual. Okay. Um, even even while people are rowing, like, uh, I did, like, I was, I was only rowing through high school when I, once I started rowing, but, like, I could have easily played, like, cricket or basketball or, or rugby. Like, I trialled for the first 15 in my, like, <laughs> I hadn't played for, like, three or four years, and then I trialled for the first 15 in my, like, last year. Um, but I didn't need to play. I, I made it, but I was like, no, nah, I'm just going to think about rowing. I was just real obsessed with rowing. Um, but yeah, that's sort of, that's sort of how it happened. My, my family's not like, um, very sporty. Like I was the only one of my, um, brothers and sisters started really rowing. My, neither of my parents were sporty, but then my grandfather went to the Olympics for like sprint track cycling. Okay. Um, so I think I've got like some of, and then my nana was like a top sprinter as well. So I think I've got some of those genetics, um, but I think more than anything, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm genetically gifted athlete in any way. It's just, um, I guess I just, because I'm, I don't really fit the wrong mold particularly, like I'm not that long or anything like that, but I just kind of like just stuck at it, worked real hard for a long time. It's like you, you saying like, uh, oh, I, you know, you've accomplished so much more. I'm, just, I'm thinking about like Dan Williamson, who's five seed of the New Zealand men's eight, who like is 20 years old and has Olympic gold, you know what I mean? And like, yeah, yeah. yeah. He leaves Tokyo and doesn't even fly back because he only flies back to Yale to finish his degree. And I'm just like, okay, well, I'm just a fucking, just a pleb. Uh. Yeah, but let's, you know, let's take a little bit of the self-deprecation out, um, Axel, because, you know, I was decent, I was decent at rugby. Well, in New Zealand, that means that you're probably better than most other people on the planet because you, you are the rugby powerhouse. It's like you have, you have orchards full of fully formed internationals who you just go and pick every year to steamroll at everyone. You've just walloped Australia in the, in the Bledsoe Cup again. 
no one in my family was particularly sporty, apart from, you know, the the, the, the famous sprinter and the Olympic track cyclist. Uh, what I'm kind of getting as well is, and I think this, this is something Luna and I have talked about, when I found rowing, I felt like I'd found my sport, even though I was abysmal at it, even though it was much harder than Steve Redgrave made it look in terms of sitting a boat and taking a stroke. And you, you've just basically said you spent about three years running up and down a beach or running up and down sand dunes because you couldn't get on the water. Was that because rowing, when you found it, you kind of went, yeah, actually, this resonates with me? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, it wasn't that I had, I was innately like drawn towards like, I really want to, I think some people are like real water babies and they just love being out in the water. And I, I think I developed the love for being out in the water, but it was very unfamiliar to me. I think I liked, I, I really liked the, just the hard work aspect of it. Like I was like, oh, I could get really fit and really strong and like, and it's very measurable and um, things of that nature kind of really, that's kind of stuck with me because I think when I played rugby, I wasn't like a skill. I wouldn't say I was a skill player, but I'd always, I'd always just try my best or whatever. You know what I mean? I was. It's quite funny. New Zealand's obviously stupidly small, so like, um, my like this is a funny story. But my first ever rugby team, um, I was like six years old, I think, and I had Bowden Barrett in my team, and um, and then when <laughs> sorry, hang hang on, who who was that again? My last ever rugby team had um, Lima Sokwanga. We ended up playing in the UK, but I think he's a place for, I can't even remember, Wasps or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was all black as well. It was just, it was just funny, like how small, small world it is. Like he brought in one of the girls yeah. that was growing in Tokyo, her, her dad used to be the head of New Zealand rugby. And like, it's just quite small, small world stuff. You can kind of say the same thing about Wales and arguably I'm, I'd need to look up like the, the actual size, but I, I think the populations aren't too far off. Wales is a very, very small world, kind of, and everybody knows we don't. I say we. My mum's from Wales, but we don't churn out kind of Olympic medal winners on a super regular basis in in kind of like these few specific sports. That's because the English took all of your leaks and all of your slate and all of your coal and you, you couldn't power your gymnasiums anymore. We've still got lots of coal. It's just in the ground. You know? oh, right, okay. <laughs> it's just not okay to use these days. Yeah, it's just like the, the English didn't give us permission anymore. You're playing rugby as a six-year-old with a guy who's dominating the world in rugby. You, you know someone else in sick form. And it's just like, is there just a massive just obsession with just being active and doing a sport in New Zealand? Is, um, it, is it just the way things are? An outdoor culture. Culture, I'd say outdoor culture probably brings most true. Like, I think um, New Zealand's are not very densely populated, right? So there's heaps of wide open spaces. And um, yeah. if I'm being frankly honest, if you really want to enjoy the country, you've got to enjoy being outdoors. Yeah, uh, It's not like... Um, a big metropolitan centre, like you might go to London and there's a lot of fun things to do just within the city. That doesn't, like, even if you're in Auckland, which is our biggest city, like, the things people do is they go to all the beaches that are in Auckland. They don't mess around with, like, urban sort of stuff. So there's that. Um, I also feel like people embrace sport um, at a high school level a bit more here than... And in the UK, I feel like there's such a... Um, I really wonder about this around sort of how the academics works, like New Zealand versus the UK. But my impression was that academically, there's a bit more pressure on youngsters in the UK than there is in New Zealand. Um, 
well, there's at least more emphasis put on like A levels and stuff like that than we would have with like NCEA. Because I think, you know, there's so much waiting on like, hey, if you don't get A stars, then you're not going to get into this university. Um, yep. Whereas like in New Zealand, it's like you pretty much get into any university, but if you want to get into specific courses, then you're going to need specific grades and specific subjects. Um, so I feel like a lot of, and maybe this is just because I was based in Oxford and there's a, probably a lot of academia and stuff like that around, but I felt like a lot of parents kind of liked their kid being involved in sport because they felt it made them well-rounded, but didn't actually want them to um, try to excel in sport and fear that it might take away rather than, you know, take away from the academics. When it, in actuality, like, at least what my experience with the Hinksy boys, it was like it really um, was complementary to their academics. And I think it's, yeah, it's an interesting one. Um, and, 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 and this is not me being sort of, oh, it's sort of me looking at it, things like um, in the UK is like a little bit backwards in the um, uh, like gender equality sort of end of things um and i think maybe it's a psychological thing that's built in as well but i just feel like less girls are involved in sport in the uk as well um relative to new zealand it is a major issue um my, yeah. my wife kind of works in that sort of exercise health engagement sort of field and um one of the key things that they that is is a massive issue in this country is that from about the age of 12 onwards, girls just drop out of sport. You, you can kind of look at it in other ways and say there's, if you, if you look at adults, there's not that much of an activity gap between men and women, but there are, are twice as many men playing sport as there are, as there are women playing sport. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's all about for, for women, there's a lot more women in like Zumba classes and spin classes and they're going to the gym with personal trainers, but sport is a very, very kind of male area. We talked to the ocean rower, Sally Kettle a, a little while ago, who, who's very, who's very big on this and is a huge advocate for trying to get girls into sport. And Lewin will, will correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure she said that we, we lose women twice in this country. We lose them between the ages of about 12 and 16 when there's a lot of self-consciousness comes in, when, the, when their bodies are, are changing. There's a lot of misogyny that they face from, from um, their male peers in schools and in social situations. There's a lot of barriers to entry into activity. And if they do make it through that, um, we tend to lose them again after they've started a family when it's, re it's really hard for them to, to come back. So I think what you're saying, Axel, is that, and you are right, it's a, it's a very pressured education system in, in Britain, um, but there seems to be more of a balance in New Zealand about what, it's, it's not necessarily about being rounded, it's just, it's enjoying a 360 degree life rather than focusing on a very narrow segment called academic attainment. And mm. it, it, really, it really does impact um, girls and women more than it does men in this country. Yeah, I'm. Oh, there's little things within British rowing as well. Obviously, we can we know how sort of. Well, obviously, they're starting to open up. You can wear trousers at Henley and and um, <laughs> and like more women's events and stuff like that. But one of the things I'd notice is that you'd 
my first ever t- regatta when I was there, we went to Paul's Head and um, we got given our cards, you know, they get an envelope with the card and stuff like that. And um, uh, like it just said quad, just said quad on it. And I was like, I went to Bodo, my director of Ryan, I was like, what is this? Is the girls or guys quad? And they're like, nah, if it's, if it's woman's quad, it says woman's quad. So it's like, yeah, so yeah. it's quad. Like, so like, that's the, I don't know. Yeah. Like, it's like the open event and then everything else is like a subset. Um, yeah. yeah. There's even a, there's like, even a barrier in the language. There's even an exclusion barrier in the language because one is privileged and one is a subset of the, of that yeah. privilege. Yeah. Weird it's stuff that you like, I, I wouldn't otherwise notice, you know what I mean? I feel like it probably is a few people that just wouldn't pick up on it because I used to it or whatever, but then I was just like, just walking out, like, that's kind of odd. And I think, you know, whether there's certain ideals placed upon girls in the UK to like, you've got to be this certain way and, um, you know, be soft and dainty and, and, and not try too hard at like, you know, sport or anything like that. I don't know whether it's built from that or, or what, but um, it's certainly different in New Zealand. There's a lot of girls that just like, just want to get stuck and go hard and like, I don't think there's one group's more talented than the other. I think it's just something that's been built into the sort of fabric of society that hopefully is changing. Um, but yeah, it's, that was kind of one of the big differences I noticed when I, when I first got to the UK. Yeah, I'm I'm not necessarily sure it's changing in rowing. I mean, if, I mean, one of our last guests, Frankie Newbury, it might well be changing in CrossFit. Seems to be a little bit more along those lines there, but. The figures for rowing in Britain in terms of like who's doing it and it it doesn't look particularly good over the last five years. Yeah, our participation numbers have fallen off a cliff since Rio. I mean, we always had half the number of women um, doing rowing as men and now it's less than that, basically. Um, I I think in New Zealand we have more women rowing than men, like slightly more. You're joking. No, I'm not joking. Slightly more women. That is that honestly, that's quite strange. That that yeah. it's I, outstanding and it just shows I, I don't I don't understand how you arra- how you arrange the world to make that happen. Like I've, in my lifetime I've had more female prime ministers than male prime ministers. Like it, you know, we're the first to have a woman's vote. Like I think there's probably stuff that's been set long in place that like has sort of led to that sort of environment, but um but yeah. Off the, off, off, totally off the record, but I was talking to a mate um, last night, and so we're yeah. veering wildly <laughs> off topic. Anyway, <laughs> hey, let's get back on to you, Axel. You have been an elite rower. You, you seem to be able to sort of knock out fairly elite performances on a regular basis on the erg. I've sort of I've seen you bouncing around Instagram and Facebook for a while, and sort of. Every so often, it was like, I, I just got, got this impression that, oh, yeah, he's just like me. And then I saw what you do on the ERG. And it's like, <laughs> oh, no, he's, he's not really just like me. He's, he's a little bit better than me. This is, you know, bloody hell. Um, look, the last thing you said, you were like a J18. You went for the, the junior squad. It didn't work out. What happened next? Yeah, I mean, I just, I was just really green. Um, we just not rode on the watermarks and things of that nature. Like, I probably wasn't, I just wasn't prepared well enough from a maybe from a coaching standpoint or just exposure to water time. So, I like 
didn't make that, but I was sort of inspired to be like, okay, maybe I can make the team if I can get a trial. Maybe in the future I can make the team. And um, I've just ended, but for the you know from what 2004 to 2020, they had like this thing called the RPC, which was the regional performance centre, and there'd be four of them based around the country. And I fell into the central region catchment. So it, I mean, that post high school, I sort of trial for a team. Um, and then if you make it, then you relocate to um, to where that base is, which for me, it was in Blenheim, which is sort of like top of the South Island, which is actually in the, in the Marlborough region, Blenheim, Marlborough, mm. anyone? <laughs> so it was pretty yep. much a copy and paste. But, um, but yeah, so I sort of moved there and that's where I spent on and off, you know, but I was bouncing between Wellington and there, depending on whether it was university time or whatever. Um, and then you know, just sort of progress through that. And they just chuck you out in singles and you just bash each other to death like day in, day out for um for a few years. And and uh, I was lucky enough to make the under-23 team in my last year trialling for the team. Um, and I'd say I was still, to be honest, I was still really green. I yeah, maybe I was just a crap role, but um, I was really lucky to make the team. Um, pretty much they just almost just selected us on like, Oh, they could be good kind of thing and then had a really good campaign with that um, and then we I broke my wrist like five weeks before the under 23 world champs um, but I didn't get it x-rayed and just convinced myself it was a sprain <laughs> and um, it was my like if you those are on bow side so we're in a cops four is my like inside arm so like every time I like feathered it would be like ah <laughs> it was pretty yeah. grim. So we, the crew tried to row square blade for a week, um, and then kind of gave up on that. And I was just like, I'm just going to have to grit and bear it. Um, so you yeah, went to 23 Worlds, and we picked up like a bronze medal there, which was a cool, really cool performance um, from us. So we were all sort of like, just we were all pretty raw to be honest. Um, and and then I had to come back to New Zealand, and I. I um, got my wrist x-rayed and it was like mangled, um, Ugh, like yeah. broken. And it was like my scapoid was like broken in two places and displaced and all sorts. So I had to have um, like a bone graft from my hip and the recovery process for scapoid injuries because not much blood supply, like takes ages. So yeah. it pretty much pushed me out. Like just as I was starting to get some real momentum in my own career, I ended up having to have a year out. Um, and that's how I first got into coaching. I had um, showed up at the Tony Ryan Club, which is my home club. And uh, funny story, really. But um, we had like 16 novice girls, and um, they had been sort of babied along. And the standards that were set for them were really pathetic. Like they'd be texting and doing the hair in the middle of a circuit and things like that. So I took that spot over, and two weeks later, all of them quit. I was like, okay, maybe I'm not, not a very good coach. Uh, and then the next eight girls to walk through the door um, became our novice eight. And um, three of them and the coxswain ended up rowing for New Zealand. Um, one of them just won silver at, in uh, Tokyo in the women's eight. Uh, and then I had on top of that, so that I was a, it's a very small club. Like we had 12 rowers in the whole club. So had those eight girls and then four club guys and um, – the four club guys, they, I mean, they had a really, we had a really successful season. Like it was the best nationals for the club since the seventies. And then 
out of those four club guys, we had like Troy, who actually was in the stroke seat of the London boat that Hanksy raced. <laughs> so I've known him since he was 12. We're all like family. <laughs> it's just a very small world. And then um, also in that boat was um, Jimmy, who was my assistant coach at Hanksy this past season yeah. and came in to be head coach when I had to depart. And he's a he's a real top lad. And he's he was bugging around in, in Ireland because he was trying to row for the Irish team because he has... um triple citizenship with New Zealand, Samoa and Ireland. So he was trying to row for Ireland, but they didn't really have the depth to have a, like a, a four or anything like that. So then he was like, I was like, Oh, come, come co- help me coach. I think and we can row up Brooks. And then he sort of stayed behind and, and did an excellent job with the boys to finish him off this season. You, you mentioned when, when you're at the regional performance center, you just go out in singles every day and just like try and go faster than the next guy. And, you know, Eric Murray said something very, very similar to that in the national squad. It, it, there, there's no kind of like, oh, yeah, you, you know, you watch your heart rate and you go, you yeah. know, 70% or less. It's just like get out there, move the boat, keep it below 22 strokes a minute. Yeah. Um, that seems like a really sort of tough philosophy to work with as i mean i mean is is that basically what you brought into coaching is it just like guys you've just got to accept it's a tough sport and you you've got to give it everything his exact words were no matter what the session you're racing all the time yeah, i think i think that's the way we all sort of approach it is that like every sessions and we were pretty heavy on mileage in new zealand um and then the one thing that i don't agree with in terms of how we went about things during that period was um the us guys that sort of stepped in at that at that time at least we didn't really understand how to row (laughs) we were really green um and i think we developed a lot of bad habits through trying to move a boat really fast at 20 rate that wasn't applicable to the higher rate so we would just like honestly just bang your head against the wall day in day out but the application of sort of how we're you know of the technical habits we were ingraining um probably weren't the best at the time but um but for some athletes it was it was amazing but i feel like for me maybe this is just me being what woe is me or whatever but i felt like i didn't have the greatest default settings ingrained as a junior and i think it might have taken away from where my ceiling could go because i i just by the time I was like a decade deep, it was like, how do I, you know, how do I change myself now? Like I've got such hardwired sort of pathways. Um, but certainly it pulled a shitload out of you physiologically. Like by 19, I was sub six and like, um, like crank along pretty well. Um, but like, I think the way I sort of approach it is yes, rowing's like hard. Um, but I, I don't know. I just try to, as a coach, just try to create an environment where, you've got a real sense of purpose and the, the work's slightly more enjoyable than it is hard. It's still really hard. You can't get away from the fact that it's hard, but um, I don't really like the um, being miserable at your um, passion <laughs> sort of thing that can sort of develop. So, but, but certainly when I was in the New Zealand team, there's not a single session that feels like, a, you know, unless it's said explicitly like, hey, look, this is a paddle, which doesn't happen often. You know, you're going out there and it's, you know, uh, a, a field of peers or a couple of falls or something like that, and you're trying to beat the other crew. 
and everyone's just trying to edge up, edge up. So like our paddling speeds are really quick in New Zealand. Like we're told to sit at like eighty percent of world record if we're paddling. So okay. if you're in a straight, if you're in a straight four, um, you'll be sitting at like like one forty four, one forty five at twenty rate. Um, whereas in the UK, I talked to Rory Gibbs, and he's like, oh, we do all our paddling around one fifty three, one fifty two. Um, that's just a bit of a different sort of um, mindset, I guess. We don't really. Maybe there's a bit more mind paid to like heart rate stuff these days, but um, certainly didn't. It was the furthest thing from mine. I didn't get a heart rate monitor until I was like 25, and it was purely just like out of interest. Um, but like, I mean, I think I look at your heart rate. Nothing wrong with that, but I, I don't agree with that. What they, with the whole theory around sort of heart rate training, is uh, you know, it's like oh, if you think about how a physiologist sort of determines this is the right thing to do, like a polarized method. So what's that physiologist, who, what athletes are they working with? Oh, they're working with like professional athletes, right? They're working with full-timers who have like a decade of training under their body um, and are doing like 25 to 30 hours worth of training every week, right? So for them, maybe a polarized method makes sense because there's just such an immense amount of load that's being placed upon them um, that you've got to sort of like have a bit, be a bit more measured with it. But effectively everyone else is a club athlete they're effectively weekend warriors in my eyes of like you're doing 10 hours right um you can't apply the same rule as the guy the 30 hours like if i can train once a week um i'm gonna go up there and absolutely bloody send it to create as much stress upon my body as possible for it to in order to for it to elicit adaptation right i'm not just going to go out there for a paddle for shits you know yeah um so I think the ethos in New Zealand is sort of more built around just like, just send it. Um, and I think so long as that comes along with like the good, good technical principles um, that can like transfer up in speed, then you're in, you're in a good position. Um, but yeah, my person, my personal experience was it was great for developing physiology, but yeah, um, I wish there was kind of more sort of applied coaching that came along with it as well. What, understanding more than you think because i think sometimes in in the uk like as you're approaching by numbers um sort of philosophy of sort of it's all like biomechanically based and stuff like that and i think that, you know most of what happens in rowing comes down to like feel and if we could if you can develop that feel then you can kind of you can probably be fine doing whatever training so long as you're always looking for that that feel and understanding at your stroke but we were I was just young and naive, just didn't even know which way I was up. So when you were sort of at Hinsky, how much time did they get to train on the water, you know, on the erg in the club? Yeah, well, actually, barely any time on the water. Um, we'd only row on the water on the weekends because we rode out of the Bradley College Boathouse and we were only permitted to row on the weekends. Um, so we'd fit in like a double session Saturday, double session Sunday, where they just go like have a half hour break in between sessions and go again. Um, and the majority of the work happened on the ERG, um, to be frank. And I think there's a lot of stuff you can work out from a biomechanical perspective on the ERG. And um, we did, you know, we did weights and stuff like that. It was a part of our program as well, but um, just pretty functional sort of stuff. And um, yeah, like push them, push them pretty hard on the when we could, but it's a different environment. When I was at Petoni in New Zealand, like you could, you know, we'd be on the Erg a lot as well, as you can imagine, we're in Wellington, but um, we would, uh, 
you know, I could do a lot more with those girls and I could do with the Hinksy guys. We had to be a bit more because we couldn't do Oxford's kind of a bit of a finicky sort of city, like pretty hard to navigate, like lots of traffic and all yeah. that. And just like being at the, the rationale around, we never really had morning sessions or anything. Everything was like in the, in the evening. Um, so some of them might have, you know, I would have like the set sessions that they show up to every afternoon um, and then the weekends. And then they might have like 60 minutes a week that they've got to fit in in their own time, um, whether they show up before weights or they do it. Um, say they've got an ergot at their school or something like that, or an ergot home, then they, the guys just kind of fit it in where they can. But um, I'd say like the biggest thing with those guys, like, yeah, they, they worked hard, but they didn't work the hardest if they had a crew work. Um, it was more for them like the intent in which everything was done with. There was no um, drifting through sessions. There was no um, not really thinking about what you're doing at the time. Like I think intent matters. You can write up the perfect program and, and have a shit culture and it, it just matters for nothing. Um, you, could have a, you could have a completely unideal program that doesn't make sense, but everyone believes in it, gives it everything they've got, and you'll probably have more success. The the guys you're talking about, the way you're talking about them, you're you're not talking as though about them as though they're kind of like 17, 18 year olds. You know, what the behavior that you're describing is like guys who are in their sort of like late 20s, very mature, very determined, got a goal, going for it. Where, where is I mean, is is that just who they were? Was that a culture that was in the club? It was a culture that you brought or yeah, so I've talked about, but uh, first off, I had some some really intelligent kids that were quite driven uh, within that group. Okay. Um, but I also, okay, it's not like it's not just that. Like, um, so maybe the like the way that I sort of go about coaching might be seen as a little bit un- unconventional. But with um, juniors and everything, uh, I don't. I'm not very authoritative. Like, obviously, what I say goes, but like we're on the same level, and I just have like. Um, I have a set experience in my life where, like, obviously I'm, I'm going to be good at guiding you towards the goal you want. Um, so I, I'm, I'm like Google Maps, but the athlete's like driving the vehicle, right? Yep. Um, so um, it's probably different to a lot of diff- like a lot of junior programs um, where they're, like, very much, like, do as I say, um, I must be unquestioned and, you know, you're all kind of slaves to me as I push this along the direction I want it sort of thing. Um, I'm a bit more of like um, I'm on the same level as the athlete and I'm open to entertain everybody's suggestions and thoughts um, and just kind of trying to guide people along the same line of thinking. But like if we say, because I'm I'm a bit of a dumbass, so I might say I plan something wrong, right? We're planning a trip somewhere and, and I'm thinking about the logistics and I screw something up. Like there's no athletes in that building they would have any problem with telling me that was a dumb idea and we should do it this way. And I have no problem with hearing that and, and thinking about it and being like, oh, you're actually right. Um, and I think maybe that created a environment actually, where they have this sort of ability to express themselves pretty openly. Um, it was kind of like, we just, yeah, I think ultimately we just didn't treat them like they were kids. We treated them like they were fully capable people right so if i speak to a baby like a baby all the time they're like probably won't you know 
<laughs> like you you know have you ever seen a kid that's like for better or for worse a kid that's like never around kids and always around adults and you find they're like a bit more mature for their age yeah that. like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna treat you i'm not gonna baby you and treat you like you're a child because i think everyone wants to learn everyone wants to be empowered to sort of take control of their own destiny and all of that and you just kind of got to give it to them and then you'll be surprised with where they can go with it really um so we had some really bright kids um involved that whose minds were really engaged because they felt like they could actually impact the process so instead of having a couple problem solvers you had a whole team that was um set on a goal and then trying to figure out how they're going to achieve that together as a yeah that's probably i don't know whether that's it but that's my theory on it at least yeah have you heard of the theory of decentralized command before actually largely a special forces theory but it's it's one that's getting a lot of traction in, in kind of business and also sports coaching so when you think of the military you you think of someone you know a general with a map going do this, do that, do, and then the sergeants all go forward, march, and in, in that direction, and it, it feels very prescriptive. You you will do what I what I say when I when I tell you to do it, sort of thing. The theory of decentralized command is: this is our group, this is our goal. As your coach, in your case, here is my idea of how we can do it. But what do you think? Because because the the hive mind and the collective mind is going to go well okay so that bit's good and that bit's going to work but why don't we try this here and then that means that we can do this so so that everyone starts building towards the goal rather than a prescriptive do as i say when i say approach that sounds like what you were you were empowering them to to, to take to take control of their own process and to work yeah. towards their own goals i need to write that down because that's exactly it yeah but i think yeah. i don't think that's been um i guess it's something that's developed but I think it's just, it was just my personality sort of going in. Um, yeah. Like I didn't really think, yeah, beyond that. So, um, yeah, I guess that's, I guess ultimately that's really what it is. And I felt like with a lot of the, a lot of private schools within the UK and stuff and probably in New Zealand as well, is like it's, um, those schools were sort of almost like the ethos is around like building people for the army. Right, so they kind of like they want their sort of like clone, like follow order, which I find really bizarre because I, I, I my impression was like if you send a kid to a private school, you know, that's your industry leaders, that's your future industry leaders. So don't want to to sort of like encourage their sort of individuality and strengths and all that yeah. stuff. But you know, um, and I guess yeah, Hanksy being a club that's separate from a school, like we just had a totally different vibe. Like if. If the, if the kids were giving each other a bit of stick and decided to drop an F-bomb, I'm not going to police it. I'm just going to be like, oh, whatever, like, you're being a dick, mate. Like, it was a bit more, it was just free and open and just you could express yourself and just be a kid, you know what I mean? And um, not be afraid of just being scolded at breaking some, like, arbitrary rule and stuff like that. So we had a, we had a group of guys and, like, I just got a lot of respect for them um, and just the way they've sort of battled over the years and really as much as like a, I was kind of the one to make them see, hey, this is the vision. Um, I'm happy to be the fire starter, but they ultimately fueled the fire um, and kind of created what they what they did, which is, yeah, I don't know. It was just like, it was such an amazing experience to be a part of, to be honest. Um, yeah, great kids. Because a lot of them are kind of at that 17, 18 year old where they're, they're not going to be there forever. Mm. 
and they're going to be going off to university or they're going off somewhere else in the country, are they bringing in people behind them? Is is there a way that you can sort of like, are they, are they, are they sort of dragging up other younger kids into the club? Well, what we've been lucky with um, in my time there is we've had two former Hanksy athletes who they were at Hanksy when it was a very much not a performance club. And um, they ultimately left to Leander, but they're both really great guys and Will New and Jack Goodson came. Will went to Newcastle and Jack went to Cal Berkeley. And um, I had both, had both of them in as assistant coaches over the years. And um, they've been like just a great influence and they definitely think he's got a, a, a place in their heart. And um, I think, you know, what you find with the guys that are sort of moving on, um, you know, we've got two of the guys who are off to the end of the season and we'll look to head to like Ivy Leagues or, um, or Cal Berkeley. And um, there's just such a, all the, the levers that I had my first year I was there, like we, you know, the first year I was there, we were under a very, very limited program at that time. And we managed to make Henley for the first time in the club's history. And like those guys have a really strong kinship to the club because they, they created a path that wasn't otherwise there, right? They took the club to another level. And then to see those next guys taken on another level, like there's such a, there's such a tight sort of family bond of sort of, we've struggled together. Like um, we've gone through like the wars of, you know, the, the pandemic is almost like the afterthought, to be honest, in terms of the, the list of things that um, has been sort of a difficult process for the club and, the sort of the innate disadvantages you're going to be at at a, at a sort of an under-resourced sort of club. Um, but it's that sort of shared suffering and, and being able to see the same vision and, and then have the whole team actively work towards it. Like those guys are, they're lifers, no matter where they go in life, they're, they're hinksy and, um, and they know it and, and they would love to be a part of it in the future. You know what I mean? I think they've got a vested interest in, in seeing it not die with them, but actually continue. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that kind of sums it up. You you create the culture. I mean, you you said that when you got there, Hingsy was kind of it was a much more social. It's much the club that was much more about access rather than the kind of performance we've seen in the past couple of years. Um, did did you push the change in that kind of performance direction, or was that just like? the rowers were there and they just wanted more? Um, definitely pushed it early on. Well, like it was, it was, it was, I pushed it out of the fact that they just didn't believe that it was worth shooting for anything more. It wasn't that they, like they loved rowing and some of them wanted to be competitive, but they had a very low cap on where that level of competitiveness was going to lie. Um, okay. So we had like a goal setting sort of sheet and they, they say what they're going to do. And I was just like, like what the goals were for the season. And I was looking at it like, man, like, why don't you guys think you can do more? And they're like, oh, well, we don't have, we, we don't have nice boats or we don't have a clubhouse or we don't have, we can't train that often. So we just can't do this, that, the other. And I'm just like, well, that, you know, you've kind of lost the battle immediately there. Like, how can we figure out a way through these things? Um, there's a lot of ways you can improve it rowing without having this, that, and the other. Um, and just sort of like set about sort of changing the culture and putting in some hard work and making people realize like, okay, if I push myself harder, I improve. 
like improvement is the greatest motivator. So I train them hard enough or well enough that they improve and then they're incentivized to keep going and doing more. And it sort of, sort of snowballs from that point. And then you kind of realize like, oh shit, we're actually, we're actually not far off. You know what I mean? We've exceeded our expectations and we're not far off. And in that, in that first year was kind of, you know, we lost, we would have, we would have lost about five or six athletes um, pretty early on that just had no mind for wanting to be a part of something that was, that would challenge them. Um, and, you know, for a quick minute there, I was like, oh, maybe we haven't done the right thing. But then, then we gain a hell of a lot more odds. And we, pro, yeah, athletes would switch from a program that wasn't supporting their need for performance that then comes to our program uh, or novices start up because they heard a good buzz because there's a really good culture and their mates rowing. So then they want to get amongst it. And that's how Joe Travis, who was sitting in two seat of the Brit four, he was technically a novice and he only came because he knew there was a good buzz here and, and, um, and he, and he wanted to try out rowing, you know what I mean? But oh, if it was man, a deep requirement, you wouldn't, you wouldn't bring your mate along. Um, yeah, so the, the idea of being a novice and and like racing on Sunday at Henley is just nuts. Particularly like during a you know a pandemic, you can only run on the weekends, and then you're during a pandemic most of the bloody time anyway. He um, he's incredible. Like he he just went so hard in lockdown, just such an inspired effort during lockdown, and kind of came out just a beast. Like pulling like a six eighteen and. He's only J17 as well. And I was just like, what? Um, he's a great kid and like just gets along, gets along with the lads, like um, just a real team guy. And like, yeah, he's a huge potential in the sport. But, um, but because our Cox was a novice Cox as well. So it was just, yeah, for them to be at Henley and you watch them at Henley and you're like, and they're so cool, calm and collected. And you're just like, how? <laughs> but yeah, they, um, yeah, great. Yeah, just a bloody brilliant job. But, Effectively, we in you know, that first year we had, we had to overcome so much. Like one of the guys showed up at Henley and he had a, he had like a hernia at Henley. Um, like he was rowing with a hernia, and I was like, "Are you sure about this?" And he's like, "Oh no, I'll be all good." And then I had another boy who, um, he was like my top, well, the top athlete, and he um, had a skiing accident at New Year's and broke his back in five places, and um. It was like he wasn't going to make it back for Henley, really. Um, but I just kind of kept on him and just being like, no, do your rehab, because he had this enormous amount of muscle wastage in his back. Like, he just was not going to be able to row, and the physio was, like, very doubtful. But, you know, go go amongst the sort of get amongst the um, rehab program and stuff. And he's just grinding away, grinding away. And I was like, look, if you can if you can be there for, like, Henley qualifiers, I'll give you, like, a, an 11th hour seat race. And if you make it, then you're in kind of thing. And um, I think it was like three days before Henley qualifiers was his first row since December. And um, he seat raced his way back into the boat. And then he went to Henley qualifiers. And it was like seven out of 50 crews qualified for the four at the qualifiers. And they made it. And it was just like pandemonium. Like, it sounds like, like oh, I know he's qualified for Henley is like a really big deal for some. But for where I'm kind of sh- shoot. It's like this is baseline, but just knowing where the club had come from and its, its journey, and then the journey of like um, Hugo and that boat and stuff like that, I was just that was just like one of the best moments of um, my time involved in coaching. Um, just sort of how much they'd overcome, and that just gave so much belief to the program as to like we can actually do something here. We had another landmark moment, and then in a way, one of our boys got 
offered a scholarship to one of the private schools in Oxford to row. And I was all for it. You know, go ahead. Um, you know, it's good, you know, good networks and education, all that jazz. Um, but he went there for a term and decided he didn't like it and came back to us. And again, when he stepped back in the building, we we're just like, shit, maybe, maybe we've actually got something really good here. And all, all the bullshit that I spoke started to like actually be like, okay, maybe this is, you know, we've got something here. Um, and he ended up being three set of that Brit four. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's probably such a, an, un, that is completely foreign idea that someone would, uh, turn down a scholarship to one of the big, the big eight schools, um, in order to come back to like this shitty little, uh, community club with no boathouse because he preferred it, you know, like this, it's probably quite a foreign concept. I think it's I think it's an absolute testament to the the people at Hinksley and the program and the culture that was there. To be honest, I think I I think it says more about you than it does about them. I think that's mm. I think that's fantastic. No, it, it yeah, it it does say a hell of a lot because I mean it you you're not just you know I I work in an independent school and I know what a scholarship means just in terms of money and to actually walk away from that is you've got to be motivated to do it you've it's you've got to be doing something that matters to you so yeah blimey that's that's quite a big deal this kid himself is quite a he's like a bit of a he's a character he's a great kid um but he's like um like stubborn as a mule like like he's not afraid to he'll call you know He'll, you know, he'll, he'll call it like he sees it. And um, just a very strong world kid. And someone that, like, a group really galvanizes around. Like, it. Um, he talks a lot of shit. But uh, <laughs> but what he says, like, you know, people, uh, he'll, he'll get guys up for, for big moments and, and things like that. He's just one of those big, big characters. And, um, yeah, just, like, things like that sort of falling in place. We had um, to Dan, who sat in stroke seat of the of the four. I mean, he was going to stop growing. He was like a J6 thing pulling like seven minutes and he was just part of a very, very casual growing program that probably wasn't facilitated well enough by, um, um, by the sort of school involved. Um, they had like a very, like just sort of a very small program and he was going to quit. And I was like, Hey, look, mate, come down, see how you like it. And he was just a phenomenal athlete um, and just took off like, astronomically and he probably wouldn't have ever seen that previously um because he was you know just like a, a like an average j16 but kind of get him in a competitive environment you'd be shocked as to as to how much he you can step on and now he's like you know did an amazing job stroking that brit boy he probably would have made juniors this year if they sent a crew to junior worlds and he's now going to leander and looking at going to yale or cal or you know a myriad of other top schools in the States. And you're just like, well, for that kid, it's like whole pathway in life has been changed through the club. And I guess for me coaching, like I may, I may never be anything special in my life in terms of making a lot of money or anything like that. But the thing I really get a kick out of it is kind of like seeing how, how you can sort of impact others and set their life on a, on a different path. Um, it's just really cool. And that doesn't just go for that, that, that fella. It goes for a lot 
like all those guys that will be sort of greatly impacted through the sort of experience we've all shared. It, it was particularly noticeable because basically being the, the slight nerves that we, we were, me and Aaron actually sat down and worked out. There, there was something like, I mean, there are 52 finalists on Sunday. I think it was something like at least 30 of them were either Leander or um, Oxbrooks. And nearly all the rest were either foreign crews or just kind of like really, really established names. You know, it was like Oxford University or Cambridge or Thames or all these things. When you have like a club like Hinsky just saying, look, the only people who could stop us were a bunch of kind of borderline international ringers from Germany. What do you think that means for British rowing? How much of an impact is that going to have or should it have? Well, I mean, like, obviously I'm, I'm viewing that through my own means sort of thing. And I feel like it's, for, for us, it was always about breaking a, like a glass ceiling that sort of existed. It was this facade that you can only do well if you've got these things right. And I guess what I'd sort of been banging home for what, three years was that none of it matters. None of it matters. And suddenly that was more and more sort of believed within our little bubble. And then it was expressed out on the track and it probably came across as a surprise to a lot of people. But I think for us, it was, it was a culmination of something we've been working for and believing for a while. Um, I think in respect to British Rome, I mean, it could just be a blip on a radar and you forget about it the next day. And, you know, it is, it is what it is, but, um, and just say, oh, it was just a talented group, whatever. But I, I feel like it should be sort of a message to um, a, the other small clubs in the country that probably um, just say, oh, we're just going to be like a niche low performance club and, and never really try to have much aspirations beyond that. Um, to say like, hey, look, you can actually do well if you want to. Don't box your, don't pigeonhole yourself. Um, and then it's maybe a sign to sort of the more established sort of end of British rowing of um, sort of like, you know, there's a lot of potential at the sort of grassroots clubs and stuff like that. And, and maybe we need to um, look at investing in that or um, to a greater degree or even from, you know, if you're, if you're a private school, maybe you need to look at your processes because uh, a club like Hinksy, like shouldn't you know some of these programs have like 150 200 kids right and they'll have like row tanks um and like erg rooms and like that are huge and it's like a big deal for the school right they've got millions of pounds invested um and maybe it's a sign to them like like maybe you maybe everyone else can do their job a bit better because like um like you kind of shouldn't have been able to do you know like if you if you think about it um Yes, the main things that are, like most of the things that are important to success, they've got nothing to do with money. But like, there's probably enough shit that got thrown our way that, that you're like, probably still shouldn't have been able to do it. So maybe from a, maybe there's a, a better way to sort of do it from other programs, I don't know. But it, I mean, each, each to their own, like it's kind of, you can't really judge somebody else's situation until you're in it, I guess. Um, but yeah. It's certainly a, probably an interesting case study because, I mean, the club, it was about as hilarious as you can imagine, like a, like um, the Cool Runnings 
Like it was pretty much like, um, it doesn't, we don't have anything really. Like, you know, our, our, our boats, like our oars that were rowing with the Henley, our boat that were rowing with the Henley and the Brit 4, like that's all borrowed. Um, we don't own many race boats. It's all like, if we have a race boat, we get a crew that's good enough, we'll borrow it. Like our, our eight that made the, just missed out on the A final in that schools. Like we had to, that boat's effectively a demo boat for a, a boat manufacturer. BBG, great boats where the, where the um, sales reps for them. So if you want to <laughs> buy a boat, get a BBG and we'll get some uh, commission and all of that jazz or, you know, whatever it is. And then that'll help fund our club. But they effectively hooked us up with a boat and, um, and that sort of like how the boat, how the boys in good stead to be able to actually boat an eight because the other option was like a, a winter competitor with holes in it. Um, yeah. You know, so yeah. it's, uh, yeah. With yeah, there's yeah. a lot that wasn't in our corner. It changes the cultural perception of what you need, of, of what you need to be and where you need to be from and the pathways that you need to take to be successful in rowing. And it shows that, you know, don't get me wrong. Loon and I are very, you know, proud of, of um, the elite success that Britain's had. You know, we've talked about our, our men and women in the past, our Olympic record over the, you know, since lottery funding has been, has been great. Steve and Matt carried it before that. And obviously, you know, Steve and Andy Holmes and then Steve and Martin Cross and everyone else in the, in the, in the, in the Cox four, but it shows that the talent doesn't have to come from the Eatons, the private schools, the Leanders, the program, the talent is out there. The talent, the talent can come from anywhere. It just needs the chance and it just needs people like you on the ground coaching who are, who and uh, getting this group together and, and, you know, it's, it's like pushing a boulder. It doesn't move until it starts to, and then it starts picking up momentum and then it can go somewhere. I mean, Lewin's probably is, is more switched on about it than than I am, but I just felt it was, it was almost like a you know someone popping their head up and going, it doesn't have to be the way it's always been. There's talent everywhere. Yeah, no, you did right, and I think so. One of the thing that Hinksy had, like that, no one else in the country had, in my opinion. I think we had um, top, like top to the bottom, like the best coaching team in the country. And obviously, I'm going to be biased in this, but like. Throughout my time at Hanksy, I sort of come in and my like we've got Bodo um, Schulenberg, who's like he's like a former um, German lightweight and like amazing guy. He used to coach the Oxford lightweights, and um, he's like really good technical sort of knowledge and great experiences in the sport. And my first assistant coach is Will New, who's like gone to Newcastle and he's won Henley and he's a former Hanksy guy and that's great, right? So I'm well, I'm kind of I'm a fat bugger at the minute, but I would make sure I'm in good enough shape that I can jump out with the boys, right? Will was always in good enough shape. He's in the army now. He can jump out with the guys, no problem. Then um, my, I was doing some rowing at Oxford Brooks and Mikey Dalton, who's like an under-23 champ, junior champ, he's like a bit injured and he's like, oh, I'll come out and uh, sneak out and row with the boys, right? So you get this guy who's like a mercurial boat mover, like just an incredible rower, jumping out with the lads and like, um, and just like, you know, those guys are then getting exposed to like high performance running, right? Where you got Ollie Stevens, who's a Kiwi guy who's got dual citizenship with the UK, I've known him for ages. He became my assistant coach um, the following year, right? Awesome, great scholar, 
one under 23s medal, juniors medal, and he can jump out with the boys and he can help guide them along the road. James McAnallen comes over from Ireland, Kiwi guy, used to coach him, boom, get him out with the boys. So we could le- we could legitimately like poke boat an eight and have it half half of it be like guys that have rode internationally. And then the other half be like schoolboys. So in that sense we were extraordinarily privileged and it was like guys that it's like you're getting paid much to coach Hensy, like Mikey Dalton did it for free and we had guys that and we had Jack Goodson K as well and he became an assistant coach and but we would have guys that would just come down and just be like, oh, let's jump out with the lads because it's, it's a good buzz here and they're great kids and like um, we're actually moving in a really good direction. So it's like a positive place to be. And you just kind of, um, I just kind of tried to, I just wasn't very like protective of like, this is my crew and I, only I can coach them and, and all of that. I guess sort of you're from a perspective of like, uh, I'm their coach, but they're not my athlete. Um, and then just, and so long as everybody's sort of viewing the sport through the same lens, it's just like, here's some more great influences and just be like, please, if, you're, if you've got an interest in helping these kids out, come down and get amongst it. And we've just, we've just been overwhelmed with um, support and luck on that end really over those, over those three years. And it's hopefully it's something that continues because, I mean, the club is, is in a dire sort of financial situation. It's always fringing on the edge of, um, of, of like collapse. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it, if we can get it sort of like on a really solid grounding, um, you know, it's be really exciting what the club can actually, can actually do, but, you know, we've invested in great people, not things that's, that's for damn sure. And I suppose being in that sort of like Oxford bubble, you're sort of, there's a lot more sort of high-performing roles around and like I was just mates with Mikey you know what I mean like that's how that relationship started and there's a bit of luck involved like Jimmy just happened to be trying to find somewhere to go and I knew Ollie and he was living in Henley and um you know no one and we were sat right out of the same RPC back in New Zealand so there was that pre-established relationship and then Jack Goodson K like finished up at Cal and did a year at near house and then was coming back to Hinksy and he was like oh he's coming back to New he couldn't borrow an erg off Leander or something, so he, he dropped me a message and he's like, you got any ergs? And I was like, yeah, we've got some ergs. Feel free, come down and grab one. And we're like, hey, you want to coach? And he's like, oh, all right. So, so just kind of got lucky in a way. Um, but I think that's sort of, because usually for most of these programs, it's like the, J18, the J16s learn off the J18s and that's how you pass on this sort of lineage of like, you just rode with that better guy and, and then it just gets so that's how St. Paul's everyone rose the bloody same. And yes, it's coached the same, but it's also there's a lot that's just passed on um, by the actual experience of rowing with that person. Whereas we was trying to, we were trying to start something from nothing. Um, so that was that was always going to come with its challenges. And I guess having those people involved made that so much easier. And like I had meetings with people before, like I, mean, I remember there was one guy, can't remember his name, but we were picking up a trailer from him or something. And I was talking about Hanksy and I'm I'm very enthusiastic and passionate about bloody rowing. So I was going, oh, you know, we've got all these big ideas and we can do this, that, the other. And he's just like, well, I'm sorry to tell you, but it takes at least a decade to turn a club around. Like, um, particularly a club like Hinksy, you guys don't really have anything and all this stuff. So, you know, just don't don't keep your hopes up because probably nothing's going to happen. And I was like, for me, like, I take real offense to that stuff. Like, I'm probably, maybe it's me being sensitive or something like that, but I just kind of took that as like, screw you, like, you'll see is what I was thinking in my head 
and out loud i was like oh okay <laughs> in my mind i was like ah. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're not actually at hinsky anymore you're 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 back in new zealand now um i believe thanks to the uh the vagaries of british immigration law um what what are you doing to occupy your time over there yeah so this past summer i coached it um i've sort of been living in two time zones while the season's been on in the uk but can finally put that to rest but um was coaching at st paul's collegiate in new zealand which is a kind of a pretty um pretty established sort of private school program in New Zealand. So it was the first time I've been involved in like a well-funded program and I was like, cool, we get everything now. This is going to be great. But um, I sort of took um, three boys there that were sort of the the leftovers that um, the other coaches deemed too useless or too much trouble. Um, so it was, yeah, it was actually a really interesting season because we show up like first regatta of the season, I like dead last in every race, or virtually every race, and there's one race that we went last in. And then um started like change a few mindsets did some good training and fix their own and stuff and then i actually had a really really fun season so i only had three boys but we we did well and um one of the guys like won this won the under 17 single at marty cup which is our big secondary schools event it's a huge event and then we got second in the 17 double and then made a couple of finals in the 16 single and 16 double and then uh, one of the boys made like the North Island team, which is sort of the the stepping stone. It's sort of like Coop, um, which is really cool. But it was like, what I also found was like, man, with uh, with these, I don't know, maybe I'm just not cut out to be a part of private schools, but I just found the um, the atmosphere and the politics and um, how they expected you to be in terms of the power structures and stuff um, probably didn't really align with my sort of beliefs around coaching. So um there was friction certainly throughout the season i mean we carried the club's results for the most part um but after that it was yeah i was yeah looking at options and now i've sort of picked up a role at um hamilton girls is sort of it's sort of like a low decile school um as a director of rowing there and then um as the junior sort of coach for waikato rowing club so it all operates out of the same building and I'm okay. sort of helping transition kids through from high school rowing through into um, into the club, um, which is really exciting. So, I mean, rowing zone's obviously at a real high right now. So um, there's good uptake with that so far. Um, and it's a bit of a changing atmosphere with the RPCs going away and everything. So that's sort of what I'm doing at the minute. I do a little bit of private coaching on the side, um, which I was doing over this winter. Just I go up to Auckland for the weekend and... Um, get paid pretty nicely to do that but like i mean anything with coaching man like it's um particularly you get paid okay to coach in the uk um but in new zealand like it's it's like a hobby job and i'm trying to make it a full-time job and so far it's a full-time job but it's um you know you've got to be a lot more sort of diverse about what you do because um it's not for most programs it's a six month of the year sport not like a 11 month yeah you've got this vast wealth of experience like you said, two time zones, basically, two sides of the world. Yeah, you've got both hemispheres. If, if, if you were going to, like, and and we are reliably informed that, like, senior figures in British Rome do actually listen to this pod, podcast, but if you were going to say, what is one thing or, or how can 
we make rowing in the UK a bigger and a better sport. And and don't pull your punches because even though they listen to us at British Rowing, they don't like us. So you can say whatever you want. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> That's all right. Um, yeah, I, I reckon you need to invest more in community clubs and building those clubs up and actually um, creating sort of schemes to get um, sort of better coaches involved with those programs and like, um, not to say that the coaches involved with those community clubs aren't any good, but they certainly might not come from a performance um, mindset, right? They, they probably view it from like, hey, we want participation and, and all that stuff. And that stuff's fantastic. But, you know, what's really good for participation is, is a really positive culture that people are excited to be a part of when you come down to training and it gives you more energy than it takes away. And having really excited, motivated, passionate people involved that are knowledgeable, that creates that environment. Um, so maybe there should be a scheme for British rowing to um, really push for community rowing um, and for, for those community clubs to actually grow and actually and actually have a mind towards performance because we've proven just here that like you don't need huge numbers, you don't need huge amounts of money, you just need really good people involved. Um, and I think, you know, these clubs probably also need a bit more money. Um, so, you know, if you if you just limit rowing to the middle and upper class, you're like undercutting yourselves immensely. And I know through my time being involved in the sport that, you know, here in New Zealand, it doesn't matter. You know, for the most part, if you're really poor, it's probably a bit of a barrier. But the the, the threshold is a lot lot easier. Like I come from like a solo parent household and. Um, like parents were, my mum was on the benefit at times during my childhood and stuff like that. And like definitely probably had a, you know, not your typical sort of growing upbringing. And like I've been able to have a great time being involved in the sport and then impact others in a really positive way. Um, well, I feel hope. <laughs> um, so I, I just, I just feel like if you open up that to, to a wider audience, um, you're going to have a lot more success really. And GB Ryan's got a lot of really good rowers. You've got way more depth than we have, but um, but I still think a, a ton more can be done. There you go. Thank Axel. That's been a brilliant chat. Thank you yeah, very, very much. Um, no, I've enjoyed it.